Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today's episode focuses on the ongoing war in Ukraine, what it could mean for the region and for all of our futures. Our discussion today was recorded earlier this week on the 1st of March, with questions coming from our host, the investigative reporter and broadcaster, Manveen Rana, and also a live online audience. Here's Manveen with more. Now, it's not often we begin these events with a hackneyed line from Lenin, but when he said there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen, surely this is what he meant. In the last seven days, we've watched tanks rolling into Ukraine. We've watched the horrors of war unfolding in Europe once again. Vladimir Putin has raised the nuclear threat level and the rest of the world seems to be realigning around us. It's been a dizzying pace, but to make the sense of what's happened, we're joined this evening by two brilliant and well-informed guests. We're joined live from Moscow by Owen Matthews, who is a Russian expert and author of works of fiction and non-fiction based on Russian history, politics and espionage. He was Newsweek's Moscow bureau chief for 10 years. He's also a former war correspondent and has covered conflicts in Bosnia, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Iraq and Ukraine. We're also joined from Washington, D.C. by Radek Sikorsky, Poland's Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2007 to 2014. He's currently a member of the European Parliament for Poland, where he sits on committees for foreign affairs and the Security and Defence Subcommittee. In 2014, the last time Ukraine was under threat, he led the EU mission to Kyiv, which stopped the bloodshed on the Maidan. Foreign Policy magazine named him one of 100 global policy intellectuals for speaking the truth, even when it's not diplomatic. And we're hoping he's going to do some of that tonight. Owen, I think it's probably a good place to start in Moscow. Just by asking you, I mean, it's been a hell of a week or so. Did you see this invasion coming? I absolutely did not. I was one of the many people. I mean, I was wrong in good company, but it doesn't make me any less wrong, frankly. Um, I... I had always argued, based on 22 years of writing about Vladimir Putin, that he was rational, that he was calculating, that um, he never picked fights that he couldn't win, that this was a fight he couldn't win. And the only way that he could lose this whole uh, shooting match, which it turned out to be, was to actually start the shooting match. And the problem with... Um, my logic, I guess, was that we had always assumed that Putin was a rational actor. I think uh, Radek and I will disagree with that. I mean, the, the, the Poles, the Lithuanians, uh, many people in Eastern Europe have 
argued for a long time that Putin is an inveterate, inveterate imperialist. He always has been. I've always uh, pushed back against that slightly. I've always seen him as more of an opportunist, someone who's actually more concerned about making, certainly concerned about creating the way to Russia, but not about actually rebuilding a Russian empire. So I was wrong. And as our mutual friend Ed Lucas of The Economist says, I guess I owe them all those people who warned us for so many years uh, an apology because we have now seen a different Putin, a new Putin. And I thought that the, 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 the diplomacy was the strategy and the war and the Shea Sabre rattling was a bluff. Turns out that the opposite seems to be the case. We, we're seeing a completely irrational Putin, aggressive, aggressive Putin we've seen before, but we've never seen aggressive to the point of uh, sort of almost manic self-delusion. And Owen, I mean, it's it, you know, it's very gracious of you to apologise, but you know, you are in very good company. By all accounts, even the foreign minister Lavrov wasn't necessarily aware of this until about a week or so ago. Is, is there a sense that there was an expectation that if war was coming, they would have done more to prepare the ground in Russia? You know, there would have been more messaging going out, preparing people for the idea of an invasion. Well, right, exactly. Thank you. Because my major point, which I argued all the way through, having actually had some fairly brutal, traumatizing personal experiences on Russian television, on which I've appeared more than 100 times on these sort of gladiatorial talk shows, sort of being sort of in the role of sort of Western whipping boy and sort of trying to argue my corner. Uh, and having seen the Russian propaganda machine from the inside, my point was always, there was always messaging. We have no idea what's going on inside the Kremlin. It's a black box. Nobody has any sources. But actually, what we do know is what the Kremlin is messaging. And right up to literally Sunday night, the Kremlin's clear message on all the channels was, in other words, also its instructions to the editors and directors of those channels was that we're going to be, you know, the, the Western warnings of war are hysteria and we have entirely reasonable national security concerns. And then suddenly, like, bang, it turns on, on a dime and suddenly it's all about genocide, genocide, genocide. And that's completely was uh, something we completely have not seen before. And it's very different to what happened in 2014 when it was signaled for a very long time. We'd heard about the fascists in Kiev. We'd heard about sort of the Western-sponsored coup against legitimate government, all these, the, the genocide against the, the Russians in Eastern Ukraine. I mean, that had been going on for like weeks and weeks and weeks. So like a sort of information carpet bombing preceded the actual invasion. This time it was like 48 hours. It was staggeringly different. And Radic, you know, it was so striking how people inside Russia and people inside Ukraine were convinced, even at the start of last week, that there was no war coming. And yet, outside of, of the, the region, you know, all of the Western intelligence agencies were making it quite clear they thought it was and that they had thought so for, for a number of months. Where did you stand? I knew it was coming um, in July last year when he published In that. July? Oh, yeah. When he published that essay on... Uh, how Ukraine was an artificial country and, uh, and needs to be either vassalized or partitioned. And the fact that he ordered that essay to be read by all Russian soldiers uh, convinced me that it was coming. Why would you do that otherwise? And, and uh, I've said I I've won several bets that, that this was for real now. And, uh, and unfortunately, I, think, I, I wish it wasn't so, but, uh, but I feel vindicated. Um, because this, you know, this has been coming for a long time. I was in the room 
uh, at the Munich Security uh, Conference in 2007 when he threatened the West. I was in the room at the Nature Summit in 2008 when he first named Ukraine as an artificial country. But I think something switched in his head during the pandemic. He was in isolation and he must have been reading some some very weird stuff that uh, that has uh, made him less calculating than before. I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about his, you know, version of history and the essay that he wrote. But for, I think there are other matters rather pressing that we want to get onto. So could you just give us a potted guide, just sort of a, a minute guide to, to Putin's argument that Ukraine is not a real country? There is h- hardly a sentence that is factually correct in that speech to the nation, which is the shortened version of the, of the essay. Basically, he claims that because uh, Russia expanded in the 16th, 17th century into Ukraine, therefore it took over the tradition of Kievan Rus, and therefore Muscovy is the inheritor of the Third Rome and of the Russian imperial tradition, and the Belarusian and the Malorusi, as he calls Ukrainians, are not really separate nations. The actual history is the other way around. Uh, Moscow was a forest when Kiev was already a civilized city on the uh, on the borderlands of uh, of the Eastern uh, Byzantine Empire. If anybody has a claim to anybody else, it's the Ukrainians that might lay a claim to Moscow. But it was all the Russian and Soviet and post-Soviet imperial and neo-imperial longings and m- misconceptions, including outright lies. You know the. I was, again, in Kiev, as you said in your introduction kindly, I led the EU delegation to the um, Euromaidal, and we got the uh, opposition and the, the, the then-President Yanukovych to talk to each other, and the, uh, and the bloodshed stopped. Yanukovych fled the city, and the U- Ukrainian parliament declared that the presidency was vacant and announced the democratic election. There was no armed coup in in Kiev. This it's just a straightforward lie. But Putin seems to believe in his uh, in his own propaganda. And Owen, clearly, you know, there are accusations that Putin's is sort of obsessed with a slightly revisionist version of history. Is there a sense in Russia, though, that you know there is some narrative where the West and NATO expansionism is to blame? You know, it does feel like a lot of this current conflict actually goes back to the 1990s. That's true. And actually, there's a very interesting technicality which Orlando Feige's made, actually, when I was on, on the Spectators podcast for, with him, is that he points out a very interesting thing, is that the uh, the use of the word genocide, why, do you, why does he always talk about genocide? It seems like a very sort of strange way to frame conflict or basically what's a civil, what was a civil war situation in Donbass. And actually, it's because of Kosovo. I mean, that was the moment, you know, under Yeltsin, it was the first moment when Russia really sort of started to get hot under the collar about NATO expansion, because, as you know, NATO created a separatist state in its Slavic ally, Serbia, split apart, and the Kosovo was created in the wake of a genocide. It wasn't NATO. Kosovo was the UN protectorate for a decade. It, it, well, it was. That, that's true. But, but it was NATO that bombed uh, Belgrade. Yeah, under the imminent threat of ethnic cleansing by Serbia. Yeah, well, that's, yes, well, exactly. That's my point, Radek, is that the that incident was actually 
is is the reference to genocide. That's uh, that that's the, the the beginning. And since we're talking about what in Russia they are worried about and what is so well, and and what part of it they even rational people believe is that. Up to this war, I think many middle-of-the-road Russians who actually were sort of averagely intelligent and worldly suddenly sympathized to an extent with Putin's position that Russia has security interests and Ukrainian NATO threatens those. I think many in Europe also sympathize with that position because that's a fundamentally rational position. I mean, there's a more or less... Wait a second. Russia didn't have any security interests in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was... Uh, had split with Stalin in 1948, was a non-aligned state, was not a part of the Soviet empire. What right does uh, Russia have to uh, to have security interests in former Yugoslavia with which it doesn't have a border? Well, that's an excellent question to ask for the Russians, but since I'm explaining how they think and what their pathology is, <laughs> the point is that the, um, uh, so, so, so there's sort of a basic sort of, you know, core that is debatable, let's say. And it's something that has formed the basis of all this sort of diplomatic, as we now know, charade in the run-up. And we'll say, what are the limits of Russia's security interests legitimately? And that was the basis of all of the talks that Macron was, was suggesting, that Biden was suggesting. But then there's this huge hinterland of mysticism, as you, as, as, as you rightly referred to, Radek. I mean, and indeed, he's gone very deep into the writings of Ivan Yilin, who's like a, you know, ultra-nationalist, mystical Russian writer who lived in Berlin, by the way, in between the wars, <laughs> great admirer of Adolf Hitler. I mean, Ivan Ilyin was is, is Putin's ideological hero, and he has this sort of very weird Nietzschean worldview whereby there are countries of destiny. There are sort of uber-nations, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty close to, 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 to basic sort of fascist area and ideology, but applied to Russia. So holy Russia with a sort of heavy admixture of, of orthodoxy and so on. But um, the really important point to make is that I don't think there's many Russians that understand or read Ivan Ilyin or actually like really uh, agree 100% with, with, with all of the strange cosmology that is uh, evident in Putin's strange speeches. But there are an enormous amount of Russians who hear him and see that, you know, we are standing up from our knees. It's a, one of the most common phrases that you hear when you speak to ordinary Russians. Like they, you know, they don't really care, but nonetheless, they like Putin because for them, he embodies a sort of national self-respect. And just on a purely personal psychological level, it's as that nobody wants to believe that they are wrong that they are pathetic, that they are humiliated. That, that, that's, that's a horrible thing to go through. And the trauma for people of Putin's generation who grew up in a country they had been told for their whole adult lives was the greatest in the world. And then to see it in, 19, in, the, late, in the late 80s and particularly in the 90s literally fall apart and be completely humiliated is something that on a profoundly personal, irrational level hurts. So on an equally irrational level, you see very often people who really should know better, people who would, you know, otherwise sort of normal, educated, worldly, as I mentioned earlier, justifying Putin's actions. I think that number of people have, has 
shrunk, frankly, since the last round, because I think not only are the Kremlin propagandists that just created, sort of cooked up at the last minute this genocide, this latest genocide iteration, um, they're just sort of lazy. It's, not, it's as though they don't even, they're not even trying to create convincing propaganda. <laughs> so so the, bar, the bar has been lowered. You have to be like very credulous and very uncritical and very dumb, frankly, to like swallow this package. So not only has he alienated his potential supporters and friends in Europe, you know, the Orbans of this world. But he's also actually alienated you know, mid, you know, middle of the road Russians who might have supported him if he had not turned into like a crazy maniac. And how has that changed with sort of the, the, the economy suddenly tanking and the ruble being in trouble? What, what is the mood like in Moscow? Well, people with something to lose have, uh, are worried. People who are used to foreign holidays, people who are used to foreign cars, people, you know, the so-called international Russians, people who have a sort of uh, inner city European hipster lifestyle. There's actually plenty of them. And Moscow is an amazing city, actually, in many ways. So the most uh, technically advanced and, and, and beautiful city in, in, in Europe, actually. I mean, really, frankly, it's true. So those people are horrified because they lost their savings, they lost their ability to travel. For most Russians, in 2014, Putin banned the import of foodstuffs from the EU. Russia became agriculturally self-sufficient from that moment. Those people who don't have savings in foreign currency, who don't buy foreign-produced stuff, they don't really care. Fair enough. And Radek, you know, we've heard Owen there talking about, you know, the assumption that Putin would act rationally. We've talk, talked about some of his slightly more eccentric ideological lodestars. Can we assume that Putin is a rational actor anymore? Or do we think something has happened? You know, are, are we genuinely worried about his mental state? He is rational, but within a different logic from ours. He's Russian within the logic. As Merkel said, Angela Merkel says, for, in a different century, a different time. Exactly. He's rational within the logic of restoring the Russian Empire. Because, you know, people say that Russia was humiliated in the 90s. Well, actually, the Soviet Empire just collapsed on itself. And, it's, and there were two lessons that you could draw from it. You know, to build a stable a democracy or to return to autocracy and then to rebuild the empire. Well, Putin is within that second logic. Losing an empire is not a nice thing. You know, where the British uh, lost India, lost the United States, lost Ireland. But just because you feel diminished, it doesn't give you the right to re to to reinvade those territories. This is the problem. Is that Russia is the Europe's last empire, and some of them go down more gracefully than others. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was surprisingly unbloody. And this is the, the sort of the last throw, I think, of Russian exceptionalism. And I just hope for the sake of all of us that it fails. And Roderick, if, if Putin really is a thinker from a different era with a very different framework for, for how he operates, do ideas around traditional deterrence work? Because so much of that is reliant on sort of a rational thinking. Everybody, you know, both sides acting rationally. He's now talking about upping the, the nuclear threat level. How, how much can we rely on how he will behave in all of this? I'll get to that. But the, the, the fact that our leaders did not recognize the logic within, within which Putin operates means that they didn't say the things that would have deterred him. They talked to him about a rules-based order, about international law, about economic sanctions. And Putin doesn't care. It's not that he just doesn't. 
he didn't understand what they were talking to him, to him about. And he has contempt for these ideas. Our leaders should have told him, if you go into Ukraine, we will do to you what we did to Brezhnev. You will have a 10-year guerrilla war in, uh, in Ukraine. This might have given him a pause for thought. So you have to, he, he, this is, these are, this is a, a team of gangsters in suits. And you can't talk to them like you were at a tea party in London. You have to, they only understand the language of hard power. And it's that hard power that we are at last beginning to marshal and at last communicate to him. Owen, is, is that your understanding? Is that is that an analysis you'd agree with? Well, certainly. I mean, uh, Radek has um, seen at first hand the Mujahideen in action in the 1980s as a reporter for The Spectator. And it's indeed a... It looks like it's going to be extremely bloody and it's going to be quagmire and it's not going to be the uh, certainly the, the cakewalk that Putin was led to expect by his intelligence chiefs. Um, so I think that um, if we had said something different, the outcome would have, would it, would have been different. It, it, that part is, is actually something of a mystery to me, the, the timing of it. Because one of the strangest things about the timing is that just literally on the eve of the invasion, Putin seemed to have actually sort of been pretty close to achieving diplomatically what he will now not no longer be able to achieve militarily, which is, um, as Macron said, like a, a discussion with Biden, with Macron and other world leaders of the uh, architecture of European security. Now, Radek, I mean, you believe that, 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 that he would never have accepted that and that it would, it would only have been a stepping stone on the path to imperial dominion. I think that may now be true. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily, necessarily always true of Putin, but that's you know now ancient history is what's under the bridge. I mean, clearly we're in a different reality and we have a different Putin Radek? It's not water under the bridge because I think that whole argument about, about NATO enlargement and Ukraine, Ukraine in NATO was a complete red herring. Ukraine applied to NATO in 2008. The application was rejected. Ukraine is a neutral state today and has not approached NATO membership by a single inch. Well, that's true, but it's a neutral state in whose constitution NATO membership is enshrined. I mean, there's a very clear vector. The, the ambition for it is. Well, you, you can have, um, you know, they can have the ambition to, to join the African Union uh, just as well. The point is, not only did NATO not admit Ukraine, the Chancellor of Germany told Putin in Moscow, NATO, uh, Ukraine will not join NATO under my watch which is to say he gave Putin a moratorium of several years. And NATO enlargement happens by unanimity. So the German veto means no NATO, no Ukrainian NATO. Therefore, this was not something that was going to happen. Okay, but Radek, that's just as a thought experiment. I'm actually really saying that had in an imaginary world, it had everyone agreed that Ukraine would be like Finland and officially neutral, then that that would not have satisfied Putin. Is that is that is that is that is that where you're going? He has invaded, uh, supposedly, because of a hypothetical possibility that Ukraine might join NATO in ten or twenty years' time. Does that convince you? Because it doesn't convince me. And actually, uh, what convinces me is that manifesto that was leaked 
that was published on the web pages of uh, Russian media two days ago when they thought they'd taken Kiev. And it's that imp- that crazy imperial triumphal restoration of Russia as, a, as an equal power to the United States and China. This is what they're about. You know, I was, I was also in the room after the uh, uh, annexation of uh, Crimea when Lavrov said that to the Germans in Munich, you be careful with not recognizing this referendum because um, after all, the unification of Germany was illegal because, because there was no referendum in East Germany. These guys are unbelievably ambitious and our mistake, the same we made in 1930s, they've been telling us what they want to do. And we, we, meaning the West, I exclude myself from that. We thought, this is so nuts. They can't mean it. And they meant it in the 30s, and they've meant it now. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I mean, you've you've had to rethink your ideas of Putin and his rationality. Does that vision of of an imperial Russia does that is that something you now accept? Is that something you worry about? Well, let, 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 let's just say um, I didn't say that Radek is wrong, but I do believe that two things can be simultaneously true at the same time. And just as uh, Radek, you say that you know, Ukraine can have the ambition to join NATO, enshrine it. That ambition is constitution, but it's as likely as it joining the the, the, the Central African Union. The, uh, in the same way, Putin clearly does have all these crazy imperial ambitions. That's true. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was always going to do it. But I mean, again, this is slightly sort of circular, circular argument, like what he would have done in, in, under different circumstances. I mean, the the the, the, the real question is, uh, I think, of not of a failure of the West and uh, and appeasement um, strategy that's gone wrong. I think actually what's much more pertinent to this to, to the events of the last week is something that's actually gone you know, happened inside Putin's inner circle, the kind of people he talks to, the sort of person he's become after two years of isolation. I actually personally think that that's, that, that, I, I, I'm not 
willing to believe that everything that Putin said, you know, you know all, the, all, all, the, all the talks, all of his relationships with Angela Merkel, that that was all just a sort of KGB bluff that underneath he was just always just dying to occupy Ukraine. I mean, he was clearly a, a, a Russian imperialist to a greater or lesser extent for his whole career. That's certainly true. But now he's actually gone and done it. So, Owen, what's happened What's happened in the meantime? What's changed? He always had a plan to recover Ukraine, but he didn't always plan to to take it back by force. You know, in 2014, what happened was that he persuaded President Yanukovych not to uh, sign the association agreement with the EU and bribed him with $15 billion he was willing to pay for Ukraine to join his Euro-Asiatic Union and even paid out the first installment of $3 billion. And that's what led to the Maidan, because when Yanukovych went back to Kiev, he, he faced protests. So the objective has always been there, but I agree uh, the um, methods have become more brutal. But for this operation against Ukraine, he's been preparing for years. He, he gathered the foreign reserves. He, he, he uh, placed the agents. He... Um, I think actually the takeover of Belarus and the attack from Belarus on Kiev, it, it, it was, it's all been part of a long-term plan. So, are you, are you saying that the, the, the sort of Euro-Asian Union is the same as the Russian Empire? I mean, I would say there's a lot of different things. I mean, he definitely wants to be in charge. He wants to be dominant. He wants to dominate his neighbors. I don't disagree about that. He has a, actually a sort of very weird sort of formal union state with Belarus, which has existed in various situations since 1970s, you know, very well. I mean, but the, but the point is that, um, you know, dominating and being like the leading partner of a sort of Eurasian EU version of the EU or whatever is a very different thing to the Russian Empire. I mean, those are, those are, I mean, so, so if, you, if, if, you know, he may have had the, uh, the, the will to dominate his neighbors and dominate Ukraine, that's not the same as the will to actually invade and absorb Ukraine. And Owen, if we accept that he's had ambitions for a while, I, I, but if we, if we accept that he's amb- had ambitions for a while, why do we think he's done it now? What's happened? What, what's altered his sort of his state of mind? What's made him want to do it? At this moment, I think nobody knows except actually the, the 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 members of his inner circle because suddenly nothing in external circumstances actually points to any kind of rational logic to actually doing this now. If if you believe that he's always even even if you believe like Riley does that actually this is the, the the his apotheosis that actually you know finally after you know twenty two years of preparation he's finally assembled the foreign reserves you know or, or the, lined up all the diplomacy and this is actually you know he's now sprung the trap that he's been preparing for two decades. If you believe that to be the case, there's still no real justification for why you would do it now at a moment when Ukraine is. You know, not especially vulnerable. Actually, it's rather, it's rather strong. Zelensky, you know, it came came to power with seventy three percent of the vote. I mean, and uh, and so on. I mean, it, it, I, I don't see any external factor that would uh, that, that, that would explain it. I, I don't know what you think, Brandon. I think his calculation was that uh, Biden is a weak leader uh, who um, uh, incompetently withdrew U.S. forces from Afghanistan. He probably saw all those um, films of Zelensky uh, singing and dancing and thought, this is not a, 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 a god of war who will uh, face up to me with tough resistance. He saw the change of government in Germany, 
with social democrats in the lead who have traditionally been more susceptible to Russian uh, arguments. And he thought uh, the West is now weak, weakened further by the pandemic. Ukraine becoming successful. I think this was his problem, that Ukraine fulfilling its association agreement with the EU, having economic growth. He probably thought this is the last moment to stop them. And, and I mean, if, if that is sort of the calculation, if it's looking at Afghanistan and sort of a, a weakened NATO by the end of last year, has he massively miscalculated? You know, if the aim was to sort of bring Ukraine closer to Russia and to stop it being sort of more European or NATO leaning, has this all backfired? The historian, I'm, I'm always very wary of journalists drawing historical analogies, but the very obvious one is the building of the Berlin Wall in um, in 1961 and the, and, and the subsequent Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 because Khrushchev thought that Robert Kennedy was a pushover, a weak president, and um, that um, he the, the fact that Kennedy didn't make a stand over the, over the division of Berlin, right, was obviously divided, but on the building of the wall, uh, meant that he could uh, push forward and actually try and do his bit to level out the strategic imbalance because there was actually at that time 1962 the americas could hit the soviet union the soviet union could not hit them hence they had to put their more feeble missiles in cuba that was Khrushchev's calculation it turned out to be a terrible mistake because kennedy uh, like Zelensky, now actually sort of has turned out to be far more far more of a, of a tough nut to, to 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 crack um i frankly don't understand what um what Putin's strategy for victory was, or rather, I understand from the very apparently extremely well sourced from evidently very senior official sources in Russia that has been leaked over the last two uh, over the last month, basically two months. Um, those operational plans that have been regularly leaked, um, basically from you know, the CIA straight through the White House and to the public. We've never seen anything like that before. Web. Part of that strategy, by the way, was to demonstrate, as um, I read it, knows this far better than I, but my, my understanding is that they actually, the, the, the strategy was to, in leaking these operation details, the signal to Putin was, you are running a leaky ship and leaky ships sink. That was the, the reason why they got so sort of uh, detailed about the operational stuff. But I mean, it seems clear that the, 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 the strategy is a quick decapitation of the government, a short, sharp shock, rather like Putin administered on a much uh, tinier scale in uh, an eyewitness in 2008 in Georgia. And um, the definite thing not to get involved in was what I also witnessed in Grozny uh, was to get bogged down in a horrific um, guerrilla war type situation. I don't think there's much chance or much hope, frankly, given Putin's massively superior forces, that he will will fail to defeat the Ukrainian army in a significant way. Significant way, but what's equally clear is that the Ukrainians have actually put up much stronger resistance than he was expecting, and they're going to fight him to a standstill. And that's the point, because no war is really a total war. There's always a price that you will not pay. And actually, already when the, mm-hmm. the body guys start, start coming home, and um, you know, is he really going to do street to street fighting in central Kiev? Is it going to be like the Stalingrad with the Ukrainian government having handed out 18,000 automatic weapons, including to my Ukrainian artist friends, um, got drunk and like picked up like so two Kalashnikovs, and you know, and, and we're making Molotov cocktails? You know, they're, they're handing out guns and, and instructing people to write Molotov to, to, to create, to make. Molotov cocktails, it's going to be very bloody. Do we? Do I think Putin has the appetite for that? Well, I mean, we don't know. We, we don't really know what the parameters of sort of newly unplugged, you know, supervillain Putin really can be. But I 
doubt that politically that's going to be sustainable. And therefore, I think, um, and I suspect that Radic would agree, is that actually he's already lost in not taking the, um, the not, in not decapitating the government quickly, in getting bogged down, in not surrounding Kiev, and have, encountering unexpected resistance. That short, sharp shock, or rather, in the words of Vyacheslav Pleva, the um, Nicholas II's prime minister, and the, who advised him not very wisely to get into the, the Russo-Japanese war, the short, victorious war that will save your fortunes and restore the empire, hasn't happened. I mean, I, I've been reporting on this this week and sort of I've, I've been reporting on the, the, the mercenaries on the ground who are there to sort of carry out that short, sharp shock and to, to decapitate the government in a very visceral way. They've got kill lists. Um, and what's interesting is when they talk amongst themselves, they're sort of saying, we're, we're going to take these people out and then they're getting extracted immediately and they're leaving the chaos to the soldiers. And yet they were told about the plans to go into Ukraine Back in December and January, they've been on the ground much longer, whereas the army weren't because apparently there was a fear that they wouldn't want to fight. And there are certainly rumours, you know, the, the, the mercenaries talk about the fact that some Russian soldiers were executed for not for refusing to advance. I mean, is there a f fear of that? You know, sort of what happens if this does become sort of a long running war, if this does turn into Grozny or, or you know, we start, start seeing scenes like Aleppo, will the Russian soldiers want to carry on being there? Um, well, I, I, I spent a lot of time alongside Russian soldiers in Chechnya. I also said also spent spent a lot of time among the rebels in Chechnya. I mean, I saw both sides. I mean, you know, and frankly, just those sort of days and weeks embedded unofficially in the Russian army, you realize that you know they no one really cares what the soldiers think. They really don't. They actually, you know, it's a sort of different attitude to morale. They, they're just not very interested. And I'm sure the Russian army has, in fact, become better equipped and better uh, and, and better organized and so on. But I mean, literally, you know, the officers that I was with would, would get drunk and like sit in a little line on a bench and like order the, t the, the tank crew to like get in their tank and load up the tank. And they'd like take bets about sort of what they would hit on the other side of the valley just because they would, <laughs> they were just, you know, it was a very, very indisciplined rabble. I don't think that's the case today. But suddenly, I think. I think it's uh, there's 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 certainly less concerned about the morale of the soldiers on the ground, although it's nonetheless very important for the effectiveness of a fighting force. Uh, and, and so far, we, I haven't really seen any any reporting, really 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 good reporting about. Um, I mean, we, we have some accounts on that the, the Ukrainian shopkeepers have, have have reported that the Russians have broken into their shops and have sort of eaten the the the, the, the food because they're hungry. I mean, you know, but just a little kind of little yeah, wisp. Yeah. We've seen tanks stopping on the road without fuel and things like that. Yes. What I think is uh, more significant is that that huge column of Russian uh, vehicles uh, north of Kiev is not moving. And it is vast. And apparently some of them uh, don't have fuel. I mean, the Russians have mass on their side, but a mass without fuel is just a sitting duck. And if the Ukrainians deploy their uh, drones in numbers, and, and there are anti-tank weapons which are just reaching them from Western supplies. My, my original assumption might be wrong. My assumption was that the Russians would win the invasion and lose the guerrilla war. But they are not yet winning the invasion. And the reports we are getting are very mixed, uh, which is why Putin is threatening nuclear weapons. Because nuclear weapons um, in their doctrine are to be used when, when you haven't prevailed conventionally. 
This is not an idle threat, I'm afraid. This is what they exercise in the trial, triannual Zapat exercises. They think that nuclear weapons have the power to stun both the defenders and the West, and they may not be wrong. But I just hope that if Putin issues such orders, that they will not be um, carried out. And, uh, and on the contrary, uh, they will take out someone who, who issues such orders. Well, that's a, a very chilling warning. I want to ask both of you very quickly, um, Radek first. One of the things we have been watching is the China's role in all of this. You know, there was that moment where Putin went over for the Olympics and there was a sense of, are they building a stronger alliance? Where, which side will China take? Um, what have you made of it so far? China is a half ally, uh, the only one that Russia has. But China's interests are very mixed. On the one hand, the deal seems to be we will not criticize you for trying to take your renegade province in huge inverted commas if you help us with our renegade province. It's, again, in, in huge inverted commas, meaning Taiwan. But China doesn't want to be blamed for this. And also China might think, well, if Putin gets isolated from the West and gets bogged down in Ukraine, then we might get ourselves a vassal on the cheap. And so this cuts in all kinds of ways. Owen, what, what's your view from, from Moscow? I entirely concur with with, with uh, Radoslav, but uh, just one thing that I would add is actually that actually China has actually adopted a, a far more cautious position vis-à-vis uh, -vis the, the invasion of uh, of Ukraine than the, the, the Russians had expected and hoped. And actually, they are becoming, they are in fact backpedaling, because for instance, the Chinese ambassador to Kiev yesterday said that he supported the territorial integrity of Kiev. And in fact, this, well, their big hobby horse has been all about national sovereignty and integrity. So, of course, national sovereignty assumes that there is a nation to be sovereign of, which, of course, is the ideological debate that we've been referring to earlier with Redek. But the, uh, Putin doesn't think that a nation without a, a, a non-nation can have sovereignty. But the, 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 the Chinese have been backpedaling and they, uh, and they, uh, and they have not been really very strongly supportive. They, they abstained on the UN motion um, and they're, they're, they're just on the fence. I've, I've monopolised you both for an awfully long time. We're getting some great questions coming in from the audience, so I'm going to turn to those. And we've got one here asking, what chance is there of a Kremlin coup against Putin? Uh, Owen, from, from Moscow, well, what's your well, reading? But, but I, I just spent the day writing about writing a cover story in the Spectator magazine so you can read all about it. But I can give you, but I can give you the short version, and that is none. Oh, really? That was the short version, yeah. None. Why? I mean, Khrushchev was re was removed by his peers after the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was a clear success. In fact, there were lots of successes. Uh, Brezhnev was one of them. He was a primus inter pares. But the Soviet Union is not Putin's Russia. The Soviet Union was actually like a functional government system with uh, with its own structures of legitimacy. It has its own weird separation of powers. You had different power bases. Lots of people who could have taken Khrushchev's place. So. The point is that now there's no one to wield the knife. Even if Putin becomes a liability, the entire state is just a personal cult, rather like Recep type Erdogan. It doesn't really have an ideology. It doesn't have a structure beyond the fact that it's a pyramid of power, the vertical of power, as they call it. And it's based on one person and on the personality of that person who's been an unchallenged 
sort of god among men talked about at the top of the news it is almost north korean style for, for, for two decades i mean there's nobody that even even approaching that stature uh that could challenge him i mean surely i mean eventually he's going to become a liability especially if he's humiliated um we talked earlier i, I you asked me earlier about economic sanctions i think that uh, R- russia is Actually, for ordinary Russians, they're actually not that terrible, that, 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 that big a deal. Military humiliation is a big deal for Putin. And I think there's a quite a high likelihood that he could become a liability. Does, does he become such a liability that the people in the Kremlin decide to you know, depose him and you know, get into a fight with each other? I mean, without any clear successor. I mean, then, then we're in total unknown territory then. So I, I, I think the, the, the likelihood that the Kremlin coup is very small. I mean, there was just that moment at the beginning of last week where they had the televised meeting and you could just sort of see the awkwardness of his inner circle, the people around him, or certainly the formal inner circle, you know, the the head of the SVR, the spy chief being humiliated by Putin. And there was a sense that, is that that sustainable? Well, well, very significantly, Sergei Navishkin, the head of of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, who knows what when goes on behind the scenes? But I think um, that, that it, it's it's pretty likely that um, Sergei Narushkin was singled out for public humiliation because he was the person who was pushing against the program, and not coincidentally, Narushkin has fantastic sources. I mean, if if the Russia's foreign intelligence has good sources anywhere, it's definitely inside Ukraine, like, by the way, right up to the top of the government. I mean, they have, they're very well informed. He knows exactly what's going on on the ground. So, you know, of all the people in the room, of all those sort of lickspittle, you know, uh, sort of appalling sort of cowards in the room, um, Narushkin was the one that actually was in the position to really know that this is not going to be a cakewalk. Whatever uh, Chief of General Staff, Gerasimov or Sergei Shagul, the Minister of Defense, of all those heart hawks, Nicholas pa- Nikolai Patrushev, the former head of the FSB, all those people were seem to have been telling him that the, the Russians would be open, welcome with open arms, and I think Patrushev pushed back against that. Does that mean? that there's going to be, that there's discontent. I don't know. The people who are discontent, I mean, the, 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 the split is very simple. It's between the people who, who were the guns, who were the hawks, and the people who look after the money, who are not the hawks. But like in a sort of you know, palace, in a sort of showdown situation, it's the people with guns that tend to win, unfortunately. So I don't think that's a, that's a fight that anyone would pick. But, but, but you know, we're getting very far into speculation. I mean, I, the short answer is I really don't see any, 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 any evidence or, or likelihood that there's anybody in, in Putin's inner circle, not even Sergei Narushkin, who, who would dare to take a knife to the king's back. Radek, if, if it's not a coup from the inside, what, what do we do? I agree with almost everything. I just, I would put a small uh, uh, possibility of uh, an Indira Gandhi type of um, situation in which, you know, a bodyguard with a, an aunt or a, a grandmother in Ukraine who's just been killed by, uh, by Russian bombs uh, who takes matters into his hands. Or in the scenario I've already mentioned that Putin gives orders of the nuclear side, which the generals just think is too much. And in Russia, of course, you can't not obey the orders. If you obey, if you if you're not going to obey the order, you you may as well have to do something drastic. In that case, we'll move on to the next question, which is from Ewan Grant in London, who says he worked in Ukraine with law enforcement agencies, and you know, every, lots of people there had predicted that this was going to happen. There was an invasion likely from the north, from from Belarus. Which EU countries? 
were prepared and you know what were, I, I guess this gets us into the the reaction of the EU which is seems to have changed very rapidly from opposing certain sanctions to the last week where where you're seeing a much more unified force so Radik you were at the heart of that those discussions what what's what's been going on well let's remember that the country that failed to prepare and failed to listen to American warnings was Ukraine I mean, we love uh, President Zelensky, but he was told three months ago that this was coming, and he thought until almost too late that it, that it was all a bluff and that the, the the Putin wouldn't dare, and that's why he didn't prepare the economy and didn't mobilize in time. But we are all surprised. I, I admit to being surprised at the speed and scale of um, uh, Western uh, change of paradigm, particularly in Germany, obviously. I thought that sanctions would, that SWIFT would be debatable. I expected Nord Stream to be dropped. But uh, what's much more significant is the blocking of the uh, uh, reserves of the Russian central bank. Putin thought he had a war chest of $630 billion, and now he only has his physical goal, which is, which is about $120 billion, I'm told, and actually very difficult to use. And if you if we were talking a month ago that the EU would be financing the per- purchase of uh, jet fighters, I mean this is amazing. We are in a Cold War paradigm within one week, and the institutions of the West, particularly the European Union, becoming truly strategic. And we have a complete change in Germany. We need to put that. German rearmament in a European context. Owen, we're starting to see some of those effects, you know, the the freezing of the central bank reserves kicking in, in terms of the the ruble plummeting. What is it like in Moscow? Are are those sanctions likely to drive people against Putin or against the West? Um, Let me put it this way. Um, I've seen what a revolution looks like in Russia. By coincidence, I was a student. I arrived on 19th of August, 1991 in Leningrad, just like I arrived the day before the coup against Gorbachev. And two days later, there were from the middle of a set of steps in the middle of Nevsky Prospect, the main prospect of St. Petersburg, from the station to the Winter Palace, a gigantic sea of people, a quarter of a million people came out on the streets. Palace Square was a sea of people. It was extraordinarily emotional. I mean, that's what a revolution looks like. You know, I've also seen a revolution in the Maidan. I mean, that was also incredibly crazy. That took 97 days. If you've seen Winter on Fire, the extraordinary documentary, I mean, you realize that you know, 97 days of escalation that sort of ends up in like five-story high barricades and flames licking the sky and automatic gunfire. I mean, it's an insane amount of violence. And of course, in 1991, the violence was not as busy, but it was in, you know, it was potentially in Moscow, there was a potential serious armed standoff between the army, which was sent in by the organizers of the coup. But, and, and they were fought out and they were sort of uh, decided not to attack the demonstrators and so on. But, you know, in order, the difference between sort of general discontent and that is enormous. Or to put it a different way, it takes a hell of a lot to make a revolution anywhere. And in Russia, it takes like a hell of a lot squared 
it's very, very hard to provoke Russian people sufficiently. They have been through it. They have practice. Their currency collapsed um, on Monday, but it also collapsed in, in 2014. It collapsed in, in 2008. It collapsed in 1997. In 1998, it collapsed in 1992. They've sort of been through this windmill a million times. And Yeltsin survived three currency collapses, two currency collapses. Putin has survived um, now a third one. People contra Marx, there's really not a direct, an absolutely direct uh, relationship between the economic situation of, of the people and the popularity of, 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 of the leader. Putin has proved that since 2014. The ruble lost half of its value in 2014, and he still went from strength to strength and became more aggressive and more, and, uh, and, and more popular than ever. Because in Crimea. This is different. He was never going to be popular. You know, if he managed to take over... Uh, Kiev uh, without a shot and, and achieve his, you know, his plan A, fine. Uh, but a, a really nasty war with Ukraine and a total isolation from the West, these are not small things. Well, exactly. Well, as I said earlier, to, to Manvi's question was about economics. I mean, I know the, the economics matter. What matters is military humiliation. We are running out of time, but I do want to ask you both because I think it's one of the most urgent questions we should be addressing. Um, and it's coming from, from, from the audience. They're asking, what is Putin's path to de-escalation? You know, all this talk of he needs an off-ramp. What is, what is the answer? What, what would lead to diffusing this crisis at this stage? So, R- Radek, you, you, if you go first. Well, what Putin would like, and I, I was um, worried that these negotiations are a ruse, but actually Putin is, uh, is demanding real things. The uh, recognition of the annexation of Crimea, he wants territorial gains. He wants all of Donbass and the confirmation of Ukraine's um, neutral status. So it, it looks like he's demanding for real, but I don't think he will get it because no nation state could survive. No government could survive making such concessions. Owen, what do you think? Well, Radek uh, um, is, is, is a very distinguished politician and also an international diplomat at a strategic level. So I certainly defer to your opinion on the on on that. But the 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 one thing I would say is that actually Zelensky in Ukraine did survive the partition of Ukraine. And frankly, I think, uh, and apart from the political dynamics, which of course are going to be incredibly difficult for any a government that gives away chunks of its territory, I think Ukraine is going to be much better off without Donbass. I mean, I've been to Donbass. It's just a sort of post-industrial wasteland that's sort of bombed out coal mines, anthracite mines. Quite handy for steelworks. Yes, that's right. But the point, but but the point is that it's going to take, it's it's going to be a money pit, and and most importantly, it's 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 a sort of major break on the strategic development of of Ukraine. I mean, actually, if you look at it rationally, you know, I think Zelensky and Ukraine would actually be much better off, and we get into the European Union much faster if they just redrew the borders. That's actually politically, and actually, sort of. You know, let uh, the, the the problem is that Putin's actually made that more difficult, simply because he sees them. That's the problem. Is that you know now that kind of rational settlement is now impossible because he's demanded it at gunpoint and no one can concede it. So you get into this sort of terrible uh, uh, paradox of of violence. Is that violence actually impedes solutions? It doesn't facilitate them. We have almost run out of time and we have actually reached a point of consensus too. So I'm sorry to throw in a final grenade of a question, but um, a very quick one, I'm assuming from London, where uh, we've been asked, what do you both make of Boris Johnson's performance and all this? So Radek first, I, I know you, you, you know him. So uh, what have you made of his performance in this crisis? 
I think Boris has done rather well. He's used Britain's agility, the, 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 the fact that Britain doesn't need to consult with the, with the EU, and the fact that he could make decisions on A, uh, sending those Swedish-made but British-owned anti-tank weapons to Ukraine uh, that made it easier for others to make similar decisions. And then as a uh, symbolic but significant number of troops to Poland as a signal, we're going to defend uh, NATO territory. The real proof will be whether Britain clo closes the uh, Russian laundromat in London, because this has been the, uh, the, the, the Putin kleptocracy business model, to steal the money in Russia and then to enjoy it in the West, primarily in London and the south of France. Uh, uh, but, you know, sanctions that work need some sacri sacrifices uh, on our part. But, you know, when Boris made that speech in the House of Commons, now I just wish uh, we had him on the European Council making the same arguments and persuading that then reluctant Germany. Uh, Owen, have you been watching Boris Johnson from, from Moscow? I've been, I've been rather impressed by Johnson. Um, I, and, and I have to say, um, uh, I have to, I, I, was, I was slightly cynical about his motives uh, you know, early on in, in, in this escalation. I, I, I thought that, that, that he was a little over-eager to seize the, the, the opportunity to get sort of a Churchillian and the slightly bizarre and very widely trumpeted warnings of various sort of dubious sort of pro-Russian politicians that were being selected supposedly by the Russians as, as candidates for replacing Zinedine. I mean, I, I think, I, think that, uh, I did. I didn't believe that he was actually getting a little bit um, uh, sort of over egging the pudding at the beginning. But now, um, now, now that it's all kicked off, I think he's actually been very impressive in actually bringing aid and diplomatic succor and so on to to, to the Ukrainians. And it's sort of a. There's one thing about the, the, the laundromat, though. I think that the rhetoric is completely wrong. In, if if you think that Putin cares at all about the money of Russian billionaires. And furthermore, this this debate about the oligarchs is completely is 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 completely wrongheaded. It's 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 just a, a miss. It's a category error. There were oligarchs in the 1990s. Seven men, according to Boris Berezovsky, who was one of them, ruled the Kremlin in the 90s. The first thing that Putin did was go and get rid of the oligarchs. Every billionaire in Russia is a billionaire. At every private businessman who's a billionaire is that is is remains a billionaire at Putin's pleasure. Russia does have oligarchs, a new class of oligarchs, but we don't call them oligarchs because they're, they're, they're not businessmen. They're uh, cronies of Putin's from his KGB days in Dresden, St. Petersburg, and so on. And they're extremely wealthy men also, and many of them are you know, in, in, in senior positions of power in, in, in Russia and head uh, corporations and so on. But um, most of them are, have actually been sanctioned already. And frankly, I don't think that money, his personal money, or his cronies' personal money, or the Russian money, or, the, or those of the sort of so-called oligarchs, is of any interest to Putin whatsoever. I don't think those sanctions are going to hurt him at all. He doesn't care. He wants them to bring their money back. That's been his, one, of, one of his major campaigns, is repatriating Russian wealth. Um, I mean, it's certainly inconvenient to large sections of the, of the elite and when sanctions were originally drawn up in 2014, uh, I was told by one of the Treasury guys, uh, one of Tim Gatlin's colleagues, who actually uh, the architect of the original Crimea sanctions, and the idea was like to split Putin from the elite. They were so worried about losing their money that they would drop their support for Putin. I think that sadly that was completely wrong-headed, because the people with the money. Uh, in London are not the people in charge of the Kremlin, not people that really Putin cares about. I think that's a total red herring. But Putin earns a billion pounds a day 
from Germany and Europe. That's that's the elephant in the room. It's not about oligarchs in London. It's about the fact that we're that the, 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 we every time we pay anyone in Europe pays their gas bill is indirectly funding the war in Ukraine. That's the real problem. That's quite a place to end. But thank you both so much for talking to us tonight on, on such an urgent subject. So my thanks to Radek Shikorsky and Owen Matthews and to, to everybody who sent in questions. I'm sorry we didn't get through them all. Thank you for sending them in. And thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. Mm-hmm.